Good morning, everybody. You notice, you notice like the Oscars there? They didn't let him finish, they just played the music, played them off. <laughs> well, it's good to be here with you today to continue our series, and uh, I'm just going to open us up, uh, our sermon up with a, a word of prayer, so if you'd join me. Uh, Lord, speak to us this morning um, amidst all the distractions, amidst um, all of the things that are waiting on our to-do list, um, amidst all of the things that we hear on the news that cloud our minds. Um, God, would you just uh, allow us to hear from you this morning, that, that still small voice of the Holy Spirit, would you speak to us, God? May we hear clearly from you. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it guides us. Thank you for your church and the way that um, we are not alone in this pursuit of you. Uh, we are in this together. Thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Here is a phrase that sports fans utter all the time. We did it. We did it. Not them, us, we did it. I'll never forget uttering those words, screaming those words, hugging grown men on Father's Day 2016 when the Cavs won the NBA Finals. Let's just take a stroll down memory lane, shall we? I will remember you. Will you remember me? You can boo me. It's fine. It's fine. You can boo me. Listen, you can boo me, but that's the one championship Cleveland sports fans have. I, I, literally, my entire lifetime, not a single major sports championship in the city of Cleveland until 2016. The last championship was won by the Cleveland Browns in 1964. They won an NFL championship. Yeah, it had been so long that the Super Bowl hadn't been invented yet. That's how long it had been. The baseball team hadn't won since 1948. The Cavs had never won a championship in their entire existence until then. So you can be mad, but it's all I've got. <laughs> What's so funny is that I remember that. Remember saying, we did it, we did it. And I would use that kind of terminology all the time when talking about sports. And Adrian has always made fun of me. I'm like, yeah, we won today. She's like, oh yeah, how many, how many points did you score? <laughs> how many assists did you have? Did you foul out? Like, it, <laughs> I didn't actually do anything to contribute to this, right? These amazing athletes did. I just cheered. I was a spectator. I, it was like, it's entertainment. I was consuming a product, but I felt a part of it. I bring all this up because sometimes this is our approach to church. In fact, I've been a part of churches where that's actually the model by design. Come, and we're going to entertain you with this amazing rock concert with smoke and lights and all this stuff. And then you're going to hear the most amazing TED talk you can hear, and it's going to pump you up for Jesus, and we'll do it all again next week. In fact, if you bring your friends, we'll tell them about Jesus. They'll get saved. Boom, the movement's spreading, right? And I don't mean to just be overly critical of this, but I've seen this in action. I've seen this, and, and, and that's all it was. We expected the people who came on Sundays to basically be spectators, to be consumers of religious goods and services, and we called that church. And I'm not here to, to just make fun of all that because I participated in it. And some of the stuff we do here sometimes feels like that because if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well, right? We want to have a quality thing that we're participating here. But whatever you want to call that, I just I, I think it's important that we make sure we say that's not discipleship. Consuming a sermon and, and hearing worship in a style that you like is not discipleship. 
It can maybe play a part in it, but it's not the same thing. Here we're, we're, ta- we're talking today about radical discipleship. What does it look like to take a deeper step into discipleship than just kind of coming and, and consuming church, right? We're in this series on, uh, called Identity. We're talking about the, I'm leaving that up there just for, to twist the knife. Uh, we're, we're, we're in this series on identity uh, where we're talking about what makes the church the church. And, uh, you know, in week one of the series, Pastor Matt talked about loving community. And I've just been so uh, blown away by this church and their demonstration of loving community around the Mose family and around Pastor Ty's family as they're grieving just heavy losses. And that's, that's loving community, showing up for each other, being there, being a shoulder to cry on, taking care of real needs. And then we had a week where we talked about baptism. We talked about baptism, uh, and that was uh, just kind of a, a time to talk about what does it mean to be a part of a community that's chasing after God through this public display of baptism. And then we talked, uh, uh, last week, Pastor Ty talked about authentic worship. Worship that goes beyond just singing of some words or praying some prayers, but it makes its way into our life, that our lives honor, glorify God. And this week we're talking radical discipleship. Next week we're going to talk about dangerous justice and mercy. And where this all came from is um, actually even before I moved here, uh, the elders had, uh, you know, hired me, but we were in the process of moving to California. We were having all sorts of meetings talking about what does God want us to be as a church? And so we just looked through dozens and dozens of scriptures about what does God call his people to be? What does he want them to care about and pursue? And we came up with these four, loving community, authentic worship, radical discipleship, dangerous justice, and mercy, because that was all over the scriptures. Everywhere you looked, you saw these things. And one of the tricky parts about this is they're so intertwined and connected that we didn't always know which column to put one of them in. Is this loving community or dangerous justice and mercy? Well, it's both. Okay, we'll just put it in this column for now because that one's got more. You know, it was like, as we're trying to categorize, that's kind of how the process went. And so that's what this series is all about. You know, we're going to have a a meet and greet after church uh, for anybody who's new and wants to know more about our church. But this is a great series to understand what we think God is calling his people to be because of what the scriptures say. So we're going to go through these one at a time, and I'm just going to share with you people in my life who I've seen demonstrate this kind of discipleship, this radical discipleship. And one of those people is the person who gave me this content, uh, a pastor and a mentor friend of mine named Doug Lay, who uh, took me through this, this path of discipleship. And he just said, hey, let's keep it simple. When Jesus talks about, he uses the word disciple, what does he say disciples do? It's that simple. Just it's bare bones. This is what discipleship is. And so thank you, Doug. And if you've heard me go through this before, that's okay. It's part of the identity of our church. It's it's the foundation of who we are is is being disciples of Jesus. So we can repeat this stuff and know this is important. This is who we are. So here's here's what it is. Here's what discipleship is according to the words of Jesus. The first one uh, comes from Mark 8, verse 34 and 35. A supreme commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Discipleship is a supreme commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what the passage says. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. There's another passage where he says, if anybody wants to be my disciple, they will hate their mother and father, even their own life. Now, 
Jesus is not telling us to hate anyone that would go against all of the rest of his teaching. He's, he, he uses hyperbole a lot. He likes to use extreme language to make a point. And he's saying, in comparison to your devotion to me, nothing comes even in a close second. That's what discipleship is, a supreme commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we call it radical. It's radical because it, it, it means that all of the other areas in our lives that compete for our commitment, that compete for our devotion, they don't even come in a close second. And, and all week long, we face messages of things trying to get our attention, trying to get our commitment, our devotion, to pull our attention away from Jesus. You know, it could be things like school. Uh, if you're a young person and you're in school, you will probably often hear that, like, this is the most important thing, your studies, because you have to do well in school. you got to ex excel in your extracurriculars so that you can get into the right college and then you can get the right job, et cetera, et cetera. And it can be all-encompassing. It can be anxiety-inducing. It can feel like weight upon your shoulders. And while I'm here to tell you, yeah, do good in school, get good grades and stuff, it's not your number one commitment and priority in life. Jesus is. For those of us who are beyond school, it might be work. Our jobs become idols in our lives because we just, our, our, our calendar, our day-to-day -day routine, we just become so obsessed, we start to define ourselves by what we do for a living. Money, money can just be a, such a stressor and so we can spend so much time worrying about money, figuring out how we're gonna get money, Worrying what we're going to do with the money that we spent and don't have in our account when the bills come, right? Money can, can be all-encompassing. Our possessions, our friendships, our reputation, our, our romantic life, even our families, these things, though none of them are bad, many of them good, can compete with Jesus for our number one commitment. And Jesus is here to say it doesn't work like that. Discipleship means everything else comes second. Here's what that looks like to me. What does a supreme commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ look like to me? Here's just a few examples. And they're not like superhero Christianity examples. They're normal people doing normal things and then God blesses them. Uh, I've worked with many youth workers in my life as, as a youth pastor for a long time. And there was one guy, John. John was at every youth event no matter what. Every single one. I remember one time he just left work early to come to a youth thing. I'm like, man, you are seriously devoted. And you know what he said to me? He's like, if my boss wants to fire me because I came to serve at church and instead of being at work, he can fire me. That's fine. This is what, this, this is what my life is about. I'm like, dang, John, that's a, you're a better Christian than me. You should be the youth pastor. I think of a couple named Fred and Sandy, and they, they went to do a week of uh, of. Hurricane Katrina Reliefs, doing some demo and construction. They went down there uh, for a week and they stayed for months because what they experienced, they experienced the presence of Christ in just amazing and powerful ways as they were just in the midst of people trying to rebuild their lives. And they just said, I, I know there's stuff waiting for me back in Akron, Ohio, but this is where Jesus is for me right now and I'm gonna stay until we build every possible home we can build and get these people back in their houses. Eventually, they went back and they sold their, their, Christian, their, 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 their thriving construction company so that they could do full-time uh, disaster relief. These were not people who went to seminary, were trained, or had any noticeable, amazing spiritual gifts. They just said, whatever, I'll leave it all behind to follow Jesus. 
I think of Somi. Somi was a woman that we got to meet. Um, uh, we were invited to her house by some missionaries, and uh, she was a, a refugee in the Chicago area from Nepal, and she, um, she welcomed us in, and we got opportunity to share the gospel with her, and she had an encounter with Jesus, and she was the only one, the only one. All her friends, family, all of her neighbors were, were all Hindu. In fact, from her backyard, you could see the Hindu temple, but she had this encounter with Jesus. And all of the pressure was for her to denounce that encounter with Jesus and come back to the temple and be back in the friend circle and all of that. And she said, no, I'm going to hold on to Jesus. And what was cool about that is this was not this evangelist. This was not this person with a bold personality telling everybody around her about Jesus. But God blessed that faithfulness, that radical commitment to Jesus. Even when all the pressure was trying to pull her back, she said, I'm following Jesus. And then more and more people came to faith because of that. She opened up her house for a missional community where we would gather on a regular basis and more and more people were coming in and more and more people were getting baptized. And it was just such an amazing experience, all because she said, I know everything is trying to pull me away from Jesus, but I'm going to stand firm. Her encounter with the love and grace of Jesus was so powerful that her number one commitment belonged to him and him alone. This is what radical discipleship looks like. This is what a supreme commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ looks like. It's tough. It's not easy. Jesus doesn't just ask us to leave behind our sins and our brokenness to follow him. He also calls us to to deprioritize certain things in our lives that may be even good things in order to prioritize him. He he calls on us to, to change how we interact with even the good things in our life. And I've said this before, but if we were to make a list out of all of our life priorities, we are called to have Jesus at the top of the list, and our faith in Jesus will reshape everything else on that list. He will reshape how we deal with school and work and money and possessions, how we worry about our reputation, or or he will shape our romantic life or even our families. Yeah, It's not just that he's our number one priority. He he messes with all the rest of them. He turns our lives upside down. And that's why it's radical, because this is not an easy thing. And so we don't pretend like it is. That's what a supreme commitment to the Lord Jesus looks like. Following in faithfulness, even when there's a million things pulling us back to these other things, these distractions. Also, Jesus says this about discipleship. He calls us to have a love for one another. Verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. This is another area in which discipleship is radical. Because culturally, we're told to not depend on anyone else. We're told to be ourselves, to be true to ourselves. Individualism is ingrained in the world around us. Our culture conditions us to think these ways. And I know I talk about this all the time, but it's the cultural waters we swim in, and so we have to be reminded. I'm not going to rehash all the research or insights, but we've got more ways than ever to connect with other human beings, and we're lonelier than we've ever been. We don't know who we are, not because we don't spend enough time thinking about ourselves, because we were built for community and relationships. We're not whole if we are alone because a key part of who we are created to be 
is that I need you and you need me. The examples I shared of John, of Fred and Sandy, of Somi, their dedication to Jesus looked a lot like love for others. Did you notice that in their stories? Their commitment to Jesus actually looked like love for other people. We can't separate the love of God and the love for people. They are just too intertwined. You can't pull them apart. There's some other ways where I've seen love for one another in the lives of disciples. There was a uh, young man, uh, my first year in, in youth ministry in Chicago, um, who I met at a retreat um, for the first time. And he was so overwhelmed with anxiety that he, couldn't, he could barely get a sentence out. He, tr- he struggled to talk. But as we talked, he unpacked his life, the abuse he faced as a child, and what it was still doing to him, and how he just, he just felt lost and hopeless, and he didn't know where to go or what to do. And so we worked together, and we, we prayed together, and we, 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 I got him you know, involved in a group that helped uh, young people uh, deal with this kind of trauma and, uh, and find some healing. But it was actually Adrian who, who took a deeper step with this young man that I think made even more of a difference. She, she found out that he loved music and was learning how to play the guitar. And so she said, well, you, you should be playing in this band that I'm a part of. We had a, a ministry that met on Tuesday nights. For, it was called Care Night. All of our care groups met there. And uh, they, they did worship at the beginning of it. And so come play guitar with me. Now, all of a sudden, we weren't seeing this young man just as the issues that he was going through. We saw more of him. And we called out things in him that, that we admired. And he grew in confidence over time because he was not just healing from his past, he was also a part of something and helping other people find healing. And he started leading the other students when he got old enough in these kind of healing care groups. And now as a pastor and doing ministry in a really rough city where he's helping kids process the, the reality of gun violence that's all around them. And I think all of it mattered, but I think the thing that matters most was Adrian looking at him and saying, I see something in you. Come, participate, bring your gifts, bring yourself to this. We need you. That's a part of loving one another. Do we get close enough to one another to see those things, to call out those things, to say, I see this in you? Another example of loving one another that came to mind, a friend of mine named Jamie, uh, another guy, part of a previous church that we were part of, he had a thriving law practice, and God blessed him with a lot of, you know, material wealth. And I cannot tell you how many times he would come up to me, pretty much every time he saw me, and he would say, hey, any needs you know about in the church? Just say the word. It, literally, just say the word. We'll take care of it. Didn't want credit. I hope he doesn't watch this online, because then he'll be mad at me for exposing him. He, he never wanted credit. He just said, God's blessed me. If there are needs in this church, we got this. We'll take care of it. Just beautiful faith. Love for one another. Taking care of each other's needs. Serving people when disaster hits. Going to those who are hurting and broken and saying, come on, we're in this together. Discipleship looks like loving one another. Two more things. We're going to finish with two more things, and they're found in the same passage. It's a longer one. Abiding in Jesus and fruitful living. Abiding in Jesus and fruitful living. This comes from John 15. He says, I am the vine and my father is the gardener. 
He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers, and such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. You see how they're all intertwined? Even in this this new thing he's telling us that his disciples will do, he's reminding them of the command to love one another that he gave them just two chapters earlier. That's Jesus' primary command is love one another. And so I'm just going to highlight it again. That's what we're all to be about, right? But we're talking about abiding in Jesus and fruitful living. Now, the translation I just read from says remain. I like the word abide and not just because the guy in Big Lebowski uses it all the time. Two people got that reference. Um, <laughs> but abiding, it, 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 remain is a good word for about half of what this means. To remain is to, to draw close to Jesus in prayer and scripture and spiritual disciplines. Yes. What we're doing this morning is all about remaining in Jesus, taking time out of our busy schedules to stop, reflect, open up the scriptures together, to pray around the table, to take communion together, Right? we got to remain in him, draw close to him. But I like the word abide. I like that translation better because it has this connotation of obedience, obey. Do what Jesus tells us to do. Discipleship is not passive. It's active. Yes, his disciples sat at his feet and listened to his words, but they also shared in his ministry. They joined him. They joined him in his work to bring healing and reconciliation, to put the love of God on display. Discipleship is no different now. We are called to abide, to to listen to his words and then go live them out. I have a friend in uh, Wisconsin, somewhat rural Wisconsin, and he would just describe himself as a normal dude, normal blue collar dude, going about his life trying to follow Jesus, and it was through the process of praying that God opened his eyes to the fact that the, the youth in his small town were, seemed desperate. They seemed broken and alone, and they didn't know where to go. And, and he couldn't get over it. And God just kept bringing it to his attention over and over again. And he's like, i got to do something about this. So this guy, at the time, no formal training, was not, didn't see himself called to be in any sort of ministry. He said, what do I got to do? I'm going to raise funds. I'm going to build a youth center, and we're going to make a space for these kids. And they're going to have a place to process what they're, what's going on in their life. They're going to have, he has chess tournaments all the time. I'm like, that's awesome. He's got these kids loving chess, and they're playing chess like every week in tournaments and stuff like that. And, and they've got a place to come and you know, shoot, shoot baskets and play pool and just be kids. And it's because 
he was faithful to prayer. He was remaining in Jesus, faithful to prayer. And then Jesus said, you see this? We got to do something about this. And that faith led him to say yes. And what's cool about this is he's now been doing this for so long that the kids who are a part of this youth center now, he's like, hey, what's your name? And they tell him their name. He's like, oh, yeah, 20 years ago, your, your mom was sitting right there in that same seat. He's just been faithful. It's beautiful. And it's that faithfulness. It's that, that willingness to be present to God in prayer, to, to be present to what he shows us when he opens up our eyes to what he's doing that leads to fruitful living. Fruitful living. There's two ways the Bible talks about fruitful living. You may have heard me say this before, but I think it's really important. The first is Jesus would use like gardening and farming references all the time. All the time he would teach in parables and he would talk about farming, gardening, and fruit. And much of the time he was talking about the spread of the gospel, the kingdom of God spreading. More and more people coming to know Jesus what he's trying to tell us is disciples live on mission. They bear fruit. They seek to demonstrate and share the love of Jesus everywhere they go. Little side note here. This is one of the things that we just feel so convinced about here at, at FCC is that missionaries are not just the people who are on stage or that get sent to other countries. It's, it's those of us who say, God, I'm just willing to pray. I'm willing to prayer walk my neighborhood. I'm willing, I'm willing for you to open up my eyes to the people around me and show me how I might bless them. Now, here's what's cool. On our website, if you go to fremont.church on the homepage, there is a ticker that counts every prayer walk that, that people report. And I'm not, I'm not trying to lay down a holy guilt trip, but either we're really bad at doing prayer walks, and I know that's not true, or we're really bad at reporting those prayer walks. So go back, look at your calendar, think of all the different times you prayer walked at work or school or in your neighborhood, and go to our website, click the thing and report those. Why? Because we just want to be aware that God is working because people all over are praying for people. To be clear, I'm one of those people who's bad at reporting. I have a whole lot that I need to add this week. So if that number doesn't jump up, it's because I didn't report mine. Uh, <laughs> But I would love for us to just be doing that, to just be walking around wherever we are, even if it's just in our living room and we're facing each direction to the neighbors around us in our apartment or our houses. But wherever God has placed us in this time, in our circumstances, be praying, God, open up my eyes to the people that you have placed in front of me. How can I show them love? How can I bless them? The second part of, of fruitful living is different. It's about transformed lives. This is what it says in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit, about what transformed people are like. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, I've shared a whole bunch of stories of people who are just ordinary uh, disciples who, who just lived in faith and God did amazing things with those. And I can think of people in this church who exemplify these words. There are people who come to mind when I say the word love. They're just the most loving people or joyous people or peaceful people, etc., etc. This is an invitation to us because some of these don't come naturally, right? It's the fruit of the Spirit for a reason. 
Forbearance? Not me. Patience? Not this guy. Just ask what it's like to drive anywhere with me. It's not good. It's not good. Pray for me. My daughter's shaking her head. <laughs> if you're going too fast, I get irritated. If you're going too slow, I get irritated. I'm just, I need help. I need the spirit, right? But genuinely, we all need God's spirit. Some of these come naturally to us. Some of them don't. But this supernatural thing that happens when we invite the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, this fruit of the Spirit comes out. If we abide in Jesus, His Spirit will remain in us and we can become like this. These could be the words that describe you and me. And man, does the world need that. I mean, our own church has been impacted by senseless gun violence and it's just Every day we hear something in the news, there's been more mass shootings this year than there have been days. And the way of Jesus in light of all of this and in light of all of the other evil that we seem to be seeing around us is not to hide and retreat and it's not to fight fire with fire, it's not to fight violence with violence, it's to bring in light to drive out the darkness. It's to fight bad news with good news. It's to fight against division and hatred and violence and dissension with love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's what the world needs. And even more, it's what's best for us. Jesus shows us what true living is when we follow in his footsteps when we do the things that he did, when we love the way that he loved, that's where we find him. When we leave behind our world to go and serve after a disaster is hit, we meet Jesus there in ways we never did before. And it all comes back to this. It all starts with this, the supreme commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. It starts there and we build a foundation of faith further and further. Again, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus' life led to the cross. And it's in this decisive act that brings us salvation. Through the cross, we receive forgiveness of sins and new life. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. They're going to lead us in some worship, and, and we're going to have a time of communion together. During this first song, um, I want to try and make these instructions as clear as possible. We've got multiple communion tables. There'll be people there to serve you, uh, and they'll be wearing masks, gloves, to make sure we keep the germ spread uh, to a minimum. During this first song, come to any one of these tables. Get the bread and the cup. Don't take them yet. Hold on to them, because after this first song, uh, uh, Alan is going to lead us in taking communion together. But it's such a, a great way of closing our service with communion here. Because we're called to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. And he's not talking metaphorically. He went to the cross. His body was broken and his blood was shed for us. When we take this, we give thanks. We remember 
But we also kind of make this commitment. We're saying, Jesus, you've done everything for me, and there's nothing that I can do to earn your love and grace, but I can't just sit on the sidelines. I don't want to be a fan, a spectator, a consumer of religious goods and services. I want the life you promise when I chase after you. I want the life that only comes from, trying, from, from laying down control of my own life. From, from letting go of all the sorts of things that distract me from what really matters. I want to lose that need to control my life and I want to leave behind the world that tells me that this is truly living when I know true life is only found in you. We're saying communion. We're saying all that. And as we take communion today, we are saying, Jesus, I commit to you above all other commitments. And we're in this together. As much as I appreciate the uh, two-for-one special communion packs that came in real handy during a pandemic, we miss something. We miss something when we take communion this way. Also, I think somebody made a lot of money on those things, right? (laughs) Communion is not just a matter of individual gratitude and allegiance to Jesus. Somebody else will hand you the bread and the cup as a reminder that we serve one another. We share a table with one another. We are in this together. We seek to be a loving community that worships Jesus together in authentic ways, that, that, that we invite one another into truly living by radical discipleship. And next week, we'll discuss how this shapes us into a community of justice and mercy. But before I close in prayer, I just want to say this. What does the next step of discipleship look like for you? Maybe it's getting baptized. We've talked about that a lot recently, and I'd love to talk more with you if that's what you think is your next step. You're like, I can't open up a youth center. No, but you can call Pastor Becca and say, how can I serve the youth? Or go over to Eugenia after church today and say, hey, what are your needs in Powerhouse? How can we help? How can we love children and show them the love of Christ? These are just a couple of examples, but it's those small steps of faith that God blesses and does amazing things with. He's the God that, that multiplies the loaves of bread and fish He does the same thing when we just take simple steps of faith. He does far beyond what we could ask or imagine. So what's your next step of discipleship? Pray about it. Talk to your community about it. Talk to one of our pastors about it. But but don't say, no, 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 shrug it off. Think about it. And ask the question, who am I discipling and who is discipling me? It's relational. We're in this together. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you thanks. We we follow you, Lord, the one who gave everything. You laid down your life for us. Let us not take that for granted. Let us not get so uh, overly inoculated with religious experiences that it all seems normal or mundane. God, it is not mundane. You, You take us from dead to alive, from lost to found. And so we we give thanks for that this morning as we take communion. But Lord, discipleship has to leave the walls of this church. We know that. Just based on what you said, Jesus, discipleship is, just based on those, those four verses alone, discipleship has to make its way outside the walls of this church. Lord, let it start with a, a commitment to you above all things. God, give us a love for one another that is so radical that we cross every boundary that's supposed to divide us in this world and we show 
the watching world that unity is possible around the table with Jesus. God, help us to abide in you. Help us to turn to your word, turn to prayer, turn to all these ways that we can grow ourselves. But God, teach us to obey your words, to live them out. God, give us spiritual fruit. It's not anything we can do. You say, apart from me, you can do nothing. God, do the impossible. Draw people to yourselves. Draw people to yourself, Lord. God, do the impossible. Take people, grouchy old men like me, and make us patient. Make us new. Let us be light in darkness. Jesus, again, all this in response to who you are and what you've done. You gave everything. Lord, help us to respond by laying down our lives. And there we will find it. There we will truly live. We'll truly experience the abundant life you offer. I believe it, Lord, and I want that for all of us. So we lift this prayer up to you, God. We lift up this time to you. We give you ourselves, Lord. We are yours. We commit to you as our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.